1: Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. This country killed Osama bin Laden's successor, the architect of 9-11, Saturday in Afghanistan. George W. Bush was re-elected president in 2004. The Republicans won the House and the Senate in 2004. And all of American politics and culture rotated around fear of, and the Republicans promised to protect you from, al-Qaeda in 2004. Today... Republicans are dismissing the execution of Ayman al zawari as a political stunt. Representative Woman Marjorie Trader Green, tweeted minutes before President Biden's announcement, quote, no one in America has been sweating an attack from Al Qaeda lately or even heard a thing about them. Well, she's kind of right there. We have been preoccupied with terrorists like, you know, Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Her tweet finished, quoting her again. But Americans are extremely stressed about affording groceries and the Democrats' big tax hike. Later in her tweet thread, she rolled out a conspiracy theory about Ukraine and another one about ivermectin and, 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 and and nothing defines the last 20 years of the Republican Party like those tweets from that idiot. If you believed the Republicans were exaggerating or manipulating the Al-Qaeda threat in 2004, you were politically dead. Today, the Republican Party literally tells you not to sweat it. I once reported the correct details of the rescue of Private Jessica Lynch, who was not a hostage at an Iraqi hospital and was not extracted by crack troops, but was turned over by a brave Iraqi doctor who said her injuries needed better treatment than they could provide. The chairman and chief executive officer of NBC, Bob Wright, promptly insisted that I apologize on the air just for reporting that. Now, Marjorie Green can tell you to ignore terrorism and instead concentrate on conspiracy theories and crap like CRT and drag shows and what's behind that, the cultural purge the Republicans want, like Erdogan pulled off in Turkey, a cleansing of everybody Republicans don't like. I don't really know who David Atkins is, but he wrote this, quote, It sounds ridiculous when you say it out loud, but the actual conservative game plan is to rule with Putin-Orban-style autocracy for two generations, turn schools into right-wing indoctrination zones, crushing millennials and Gen Z underfoot while training up Gen Alpha as fascists. That's the through line for all all of it. They know everyone under 40 hates them. They know they've lost the broader public and can't win real majorities. So their plan is authoritarian minority rule along Orbanist lines to crush opposition while indoctrinating a new generation. He continued. Meanwhile, they absolutely intend on banning birth control, executing teenagers for having abortions and jailing women for crossing state lines for reproductive care. All to punish women for daring to have sex outside the dictates of fathers, husbands, and pastors for childbearing. They also plan to end gay marriage and force LGBT people back into the closet. Their game plan is to destroy liberalism, train up a new generation of fascists, force women into childbearing servitude for white supremacy, and reinstill Putin-style toxic masculinity in men. It's not a complicated plan, Atkins writes. They see Russia and Hungary as global models for it. They're planning and executing the plan right out in the open. The only question, Mr. Atkins concluded, is whether the rest of us will take the necessary all-of-society approach to stopping them. The thing is, in spite of the affirmative action for aging white evangelicals that is the Senate, the Electoral College, and their illegitimate Supreme Court, the plan is unlikely to work. It can only succeed if the rest of us fail to push back and say no society-wide. End quote. David O. Atkins, he wrote all that on Twitter, which brings you that... And also brings you the honking sounds made by Marjorie Traitor Green. Mr. Atkins identifies himself as a contributor to Washington Monthly and, then this is the important part, elected Democratic National Committee member from California. I am pleasantly surprised that Mr. Atkins is on the DNC because. If there are two bodies in this country working hardest against what he warns us of, this slow-cooking witch's brew of white supremacy, fraudulent religion, ginned-up outrage, conspiracy theory addiction, violence and misogyny, this fascism while you wait... If there are two bodies in this country right now working hardest against his words, it can only succeed if the rest of us fail to push back and say no. If there are two bodies doing their damnedest to fail to push back and to fail to say no, one of them is the bureaucracy and establishment of the Democratic Party, as typified by organizations like the Democratic National Committee. I mean, think about this just for a second. The last president of the United States was impeached twice. He blackmailed friends and foes of this nation alike into burying the evidence of his conspiracies with the help of a nation that is an enemy of this country. He then openly called for street thugs, gangs, and vigilantes to come to Washington and stop our most sacred institution, the peaceful transfer of power. He left office reviled and under threat of indictment. He is the leading candidate of his party, the Trump-Putin axis, for its nomination for the White House in 24. And you know in your heart that it is his intention to then seize control by election, by corrupting the Electoral College, by being installed by the drunks and religious nuts he himself appointed to the Supreme Court by any means available. And if he is restored to office, you also know in your heart that he will attempt to remain there, even though the Constitution of the United States of America limits him to two terms. And they will do their damnedest, including a military coup this time, to keep him there as long as he and they want. You know that. All of that is true. The plot of January 6th, in fact, started on January 20th, 2017. The first thing crazy Trump did after the election was to begin his campaign for re election. And the plot is as active now as it was when the traitors stormed up the Capitol steps. And Marjorie Traitor Green was tweeting about 1776. They are operating, as David Atkins of the Democratic National Committee so poetically noted, right out in the open. And when was the last time you heard any of this screamed from the rooftops, shouted from the campaign platforms, even just said aloud quietly, but still aloud by anybody besides the January 6th committee, by anybody from the Democratic National Committee or the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee or from the White House or from the Justice Department? A Supreme Court with at least one and more realistically three seats stolen from Democratic presidents invalidates Roe v. Wade and suddenly pro-choice has jumped from 45% of the country to 55% and which Democrats are running on that? The Democrats are playing defense. On gas prices and inflation and still defaulting back to this idea that if they can only do something really bipartisan, all the Republicans will applaud and vote for them and they'll win the next vote 150 million to nothing. And now in its simplest, most easily digestible construction, Joe Biden killed the leader of Al Qaeda. And the Republicans can get away with claiming it is a distraction from gas prices coming down. Democrats let, Democrats let slime buckets like Marjorie Greene say stuff like this without consequences, without making her a pariah, without questioning her patriotism, without questioning her sanity. I love Joe Biden. I mean that literally. I met Joe Biden in March 2007, second time, really. He asked me to lunch so he could ask me for advice about public speaking if you can believe that. I still can't. And when I asked him, wait, you've been in the Senate 33 years. This is the first time you're asking about this. He did not storm out or take offense or smile stiffly like any ordinary politician. He laughed. He laughed like hell. And I have loved him since then and recognized in him one of literally only a dozen or fewer true public servants in my adult lifetime. And in any other era in our history, his election, after his path, would have been one of the epic sagas in all of American history. But deep in his heart, Joe Biden believes Democrats will retain the House and the Senate in the fall, and he will be reelected in 2024 because... They did good things. They served the people. They steered us out of the madness of crazy Trump. They steered us beyond COVID, through inflation, past Ukraine. They got Bin Laden's deputy and successor. The Democrats remain invested in the institution of American politics as it was the day Joe Biden declared his candidacy for president on June 9, 1987 collaboration and a drink with Ronald Reagan and the good rules of the vast American political and media industrial complex back when both sides were in bipartisan agreement that they could bargain it out. The bipartisan rules that ultimately Joe McCarthy gets censured and the chairman of the House Un-American Activities Committees get jail terms and Huey Long gets shot. And we beat crazy Trump once, we'll beat him again. Unfortunately, the lead Democrats also believe in the bad rules of the vast American political and media industrial complex like institutional self-protection. You know, if you can indict an ex-president today, doesn't that mean you can indict an ex-attorney general tomorrow? Sean Connery says in the film The Untouchables, they pull a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. The Struggle to Save American Democracy is at that point right now and to a metaphorical knife fight for the future of this country when the mainstream democrats are fighting against crazy people and fascists and when the mainstream democrats now have the body of bin laden's deputy the mainstream democrats have brought to this metaphorical knife fight for our future a biofuel plant in iowa But as I said, the fascist plot to overthrow this government can, as David Atkins wrote, only succeed if the rest of us fail to push back and say no. And there are two entities doing more than any others to make sure we, in fact, do fail to push back and we do fail to say no. The mainstream Democratic Party is one of those entities, and the other entity is the American news media. We can actually fix the American news media. This is what we have to do. Turn up the volume a little bit. I think I have to whisper this part. Do not patronize the guy who I once put on TV who now writes things for CNN's website like how Elon Musk could, quote, rescue Donald Trump. As if Elon Musk and a rescued Donald Trump wouldn't try to imprison or kill everybody who works for CNN and maybe everybody who watches CNN. Do not patronize him. Do not patronize the network I worked at last century where the co-new president hires one of the Trumpists who blackmailed Ukraine and who now has Ukrainian blood on his hands. The co-president hires him and says, with people recording him saying it, that he's doing it so his news division can have access to the Republicans once they take the House, as if those Republicans won't figure out a way, legal or not, to destroy CBS News or turn it into more fascist propaganda. But there is also a secret cheat code for getting the American media, American television to do what you want, besides boycotting the parts that don't get it. And it's simple. TV news loves noise. This is not new today. It is just more today. So make that noise. When Marjorie Green mocks the execution of the leader of al-Qaeda, when Trump, while taking Saudi money to host a golf tournament, while this country is killing bin Laden's deputy, when Trump says, nobody ever got to the bottom of 9-11, Every prominent Democrat should call press conferences and call them both what they are, disloyal. They should say Green and Trump have spat on the graves of the dead of 9-11. They should call them terrorist sympathizers. They should call them Green and Trump what they are, terrorists. Whether Democrats like it or not, the loud subtext of the elections of two months hence will be which party loves and defends America and which doesn't and wants to see millions of Americans disappear. And if you send your thugs to invade the Capitol and kill the vice president and the Speaker of the House, and if you mock the 9-11 victims and you insist America must not sweat terrorism, you have to be buried under a mountain of bad media Placed there, pound by pound, by the Democrats. <music> Post scripts to the news. Worst persons, sports, and why the baseball trade deadline is actually an annual disaster for the sport. And also the 43rd anniversary of the death of a great athlete and I had to cover it for a radio network on my seventh night as a professional at the age of 20. Coming up on Countdown.
2: Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul. Some 41, 30 seconds from Mars. Oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.
1: Just ahead, my Postscripts to the News segment, plus Worst Persons and Sports. But first, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need whom you can help. Every dog has its day. You can help this one and all of our subjects on my Twitter feed for Pups in Trouble. That's at Tom Jumbo Grumbo. Today, are you near Riverside, California? Could you help Adopt or foster Tilly. She's a seven year old Siberian Husky mix, a beautiful white and gray dog with piercing eyes. She has arthritis, but she's sweet and she's in trouble. There are 96 dogs on death row at the Kill Shelter in Riverside. They're all listed on the Instagram account I Love Rescue. Tilly's been there a month. You can save Tilly at the Riverside, California City Shelter. Look her up on my dog Twitter account, Tom Jumbo Grumbo. Tilly she and all the others in Riverside also on Instagram at I love rescue thank you Let's add to your knowledge with a little more news. Time for postscripts to the news. Some headlines, some thoughts, some laughs. Dateline DC, apropos of the earlier commentary, whatever the Republicans do, hit them over the head with it. John Stewart just got them to reverse on the Veterans Burn Pit health care bill, the one Cancun Cruz and Steve Daines blocked and were fist bumping about, knowing that they were on the Senate chamber camera. Mitch McConnell on the bill last night, quote, it will pass this week. Democrats will now, of course, forget about it instead of putting Cruz and Danes in blast in every ad, every television station, every campaign in the midterms. Hit them over the head with it. Dateline, the voting booths. primary day in Arizona, Kansas, Missouri, and Washington state, the endorsement from psycho Trump was much coveted for the Republican Senate, not in Missouri, State Attorney General Eric Schmidt, or disgraced, resigned governor, and accused domestic violence perp with a campaign ad in which he threatened to shoot other Republicans, Eric Greitens. The A-Team. So Trump, super genius, wrote last night, I am therefore proud to announce that Eric has my complete and total endorsement. Eric Schmidt, Brighton's Idol. L. Duche spokesman Taylor Butterwich says the statement, quote, speaks for itself. You bet it does. Dateline Phoenix on the eve of the primary in Arizona Senate candidate, Attorney General Mark Brnovich. He's the one who does not look like he was hypnotized, but didn't come out of it when the magician snapped his fingers. That would be Blake Masters. This is the other guy, Brnovich, who says he has wrapped up the endless Arizona fraudulent, fraudulent voter claims about dead voters. He wrote the paranoid state senate president Karen Fan that of the 282 supposedly dead voters that she and her sleuths found 281 of them aren't even dead. Well, many aren't dead, and quote, "We're very surprised to learn that they were allegedly deceased." Once again, you bet. Dateline DC, Trump goon guy refit the first January 6th terrorist to go to trial gets seven years and three months in prison, add on the extra three months because he was a three percenter. He did not though get the desired terror offense multiplier. The FBI was tipped off by his son. Nancy Faust. Dateline Atlanta, the two-day Atlanta music fa- midtown festival scheduled for next month is canceled. Why four? It's in a city park and the state Supreme Court has ruled that Georgians can carry guns in city parks. Some of the scheduled artists in Jack White, Future, and Fallout Boy were supposed to play. They refused to perform where guns are allowed. Organizers were also afraid that if they banned guns, they'd get sued. Sorry, Atlanta, this is how fascist Republican state leaders will eventually be crushed. We treat their cities and towns like they were South Africa during apartheid. And Dateline Bedminster, New Jersey, a follow-up on the Trump buried his first wife at the first tee at his first golf course to get the first tax break. The one-in-hole scandal. Found yesterday about Trump's 2007 bid for a family mausoleum with 19-foot-high obelisks in the middle of the course. The then mayor of Bedminster, Robert Holtaway, with a prescient argument to the city council that the grave of Donald Trump will attract the wrong sort of people. Like he said in Austria, quote, where a Nazi war criminal was buried and that became quote a tourist attraction. 2007. Right on the money, Mr. Holtaway.
0: This is Sports Center. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann.
1: sports. Baseball's trade deadline, 6 p.m. Eastern today. The games ended last night with Juan Soto still a Washington National, but after his last at-bat against the New York Mets, his batting coach came up to Soto and gave him a big hug. It was not about the at-bat. Soto had walked. It's amazing to realize that possible ex-Washington National Soto was second in the MVP balloting last year to ex-Washington National Bryce Harper, fifth in the same voting was ex-Washington National Trey Turner, 14th ex-Washington National Max Scherzer, and you wonder why eight different major league ball clubs have moved out of Washington or gone bankrupt in Washington. Meanwhile, the newspaper the Orange County Register says, not that it was expected, but the Angels will not trade MVP Shohei Otani, the DH and pitcher. Those who were traded, the Oakland A's, have dealt away so many stars. They are now the Oakland V's. Pitchers Frankie Montas and Lou Trevino to the Yankees for prospects. Trey Mancini goes from the Orioles to the Astros. Ace reliever Josh Hader from the Brewers to the Padres for a package, including aptly named pitching prospect Robert Gasser and pitcher Danelson Lamette. And why isn't Danelson Lamette a Met? Tommy Pham, outfielder and angry fantasy football league manager, goes from the Reds to the Red Sox, but in a truly mixed message, catcher Christian Vazquez goes from the Red Sox to the Astros. What's going on in Boston? Any clues? But there's a bigger issue here. The trade deadline itself and the fans of Soto or Otani or whoever else ultimately gets dealt now or next year or whenever, the fans who will be heartbroken basketball has turned player movement into a plus, a kind of frat trick. Football has made it impossible. Baseball, it's just pain. It was posited by the website Deadspin last week that if a team would rather trade Soto, who's just 23 years old, for a basket full of top minor league prospects, many of whom are older than he is, to do that rather than pay him, that means baseball is completely screwed up. The suggestion was that the easiest fix would be To eliminate baseball's minor leagues as we know them, not the leagues themselves, but what they mean and who owns the teams. It sounds crazy, but there's the germ of the idea here. This system, in which nearly every minor league team is simply a training laboratory for its major league masters, was instituted by the legendary Branch Rickey for the St. Louis Cardinals of the 1920s. In those days, minor league teams signed nearly all the high school and college players, trained them, developed them, and sold them to the highest big league bidder. Joe DiMaggio wasn't drafted by the New York Yankees. He was signed by the minor league San Francisco Seals and traded to the Yankees for four players and $50,000 in 1934. Ted Williams was bought by the Boston Red Sox from the minor league team in San Diego for four players and thirty-five thousand in 1938. In St. Louis, Branch Rickey developed the farm system, develop your own players, because the Cardinals were too poor to compete in that player sale market for the Dimaggio's and the Williamses. If. Deadspin argues, we went back to a world where major league teams actually owned the contracts of only 30 or 40 players at a time. There would not be any minor league prospects to trade Juan Soto for. It is so novel an idea that it takes a long time to recognize that it might be the right thing to do. And if you don't think so, wait until your favorite team trades your favorite player for five guys, four of whom will almost certainly never make it today, or next year. And guess what time is it, boys and girls? The Daily Roundup of the Miscreants, Morons, and Dunning-Kruger Effect exhibits who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The silver to Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn, weekly candidate for the dumbest elected officer of the land. She says on the floor of the Senate that after the climate inflation deal, quote, the worst elements of a radical socialist agenda, unquote, are being pushed by Senator Joe Manchin. I wish! Blackburn also said the bill included a, quote, multi-hundred dollar tax hike just to clarify, in case you were wondering, Marsha Blackburn is an actual senator. She is not a character performed by the actress Stephanie Courtney from the insurance company commercial. That character is called Flo's mom. Runner up, Herschel Walker, the Georgia Senate candidate and the gift who keeps on giving every couple days. Weeks after it was acknowledged that he had two more children of whom he did not acknowledge being the father, Two more than we thought, Herschel has finally come up with an excuse and it relates to the campaign and how mean people are to him. He told the equally dim Brian Kilmeade on Fox News, quote, the thing I didn't acknowledge them here because in our my two youngest kids, I'm not gonna acknowledge them because I don't want them to be under any kind of scrutiny. Yeah, because, Herschel, you were anonymous before you ran for office. But the winner, I mentioned Trump in the Eric Greitens, Eric Schmidt Senate primary in Missouri, finally endorsing last night and endorsing simply Eric. There was supposed to be some kind of subtlety or pun or wiggle room or wit to this or something, this deliberately not mentioning which of the two Erics he was endorsing, but... On the old Trump train, the caboose did not get the message. Kimberly Guilfoyle, the one with the photo album of all her old boyfriends, if you know what I mean, the girlfriend of somebody, fiance, girl, what is she? She's nobody's sister. What is she something? What is she just she just hangs around and takes pictures of them? Anyway, she put out a video last night and she's supporting Eric Greitens calling him the true hero of the MAGA movement. So we have a new pronunciation on MAGA. In the video, the MAGA video, Ms. Guilfoyle, who is now 53 years old, is depicted wearing a tight-fitting red sweater with extra cleavage, neon pink lipstick, partially dyed brown hair draped over her bosom, and size 32 fake eyelashes. Why? Given how the lunatic right is going after drag shows and drag queens, why do all the leading women of the lunatic right, the MAGA wagas, why do they dress and make up like drag queens? Kim, I spoiled the joke. What joke? Eric? Eric who? Do I go out with somebody named Eric? I don't get it. Gilfoyle, today's worst person in the world.
2: Visit livenation.com slash concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.
1: And now, as we always do, we always do, this is the second episode of the podcast. Now, as we always do, we close with the number one story on the countdown Things I Promised Not to Tell. And back to my favorite topic, me. August 2nd, 1979 is now 43 years ago. And if I sound incredulous about that, it's because I'm incredulous about that. A certain part of me is always living back there on August 2nd, 1979. And the rest of that day is seared into my memory like my name and address. One month earlier to the day, July 2nd, 1979, I had been in the stands in my family's seats back of first base at Yankee Stadium in New York. A 20-year-old Yankees fan applauding Thurman Munson's RBI double and Lou Pinella's two-for-four day and Roy White's appearance, since Roy White was my mother's favorite Yankee player. But Munson particularly, he had been playing for the Yankees since I was nine, I was now 20, thus more than half my life. Now, on August 2nd, 1979, I was finishing the first month of my professional broadcasting career. It was my seventh or eighth solo shift anywhere for money. I was the nighttime sportscaster of United Press International's radio network, 1,000 stations worldwide known as UPI Audio, For my first sportscast of the night, due to go at 5.45 p.m., I had long since finished my script. Tom Watson was leading round one of the PGA golf in Michigan. The lawyer who owned Washington of the NFL, Edward Bennett Williams, he had just bought the Baltimore Orioles. There was an Expos Cubs matinee, a baseball game in Montreal, that prevailed through three rain delays. It was just about 5.43 p.m. Eastern time, and I was making the short walk from the little sports cubbyhole to the little main on-air studio in UPI World Headquarters in the Daily News building, or if you saw the movie, the Superman building on 42nd Street in Manhattan. I was just walking past the bank of thermal printers, each making their sluggish, muted, honking sound as they slowly printed stories out onto what wasn't really paper. There was the main UPI wire, the UPI sports wire, the UPI business wire, the UPI international wire, the UPI radio wire, several internal message wires via which the UPI bureaus around the world could communicate with headquarters in New York, or as it was abbreviated, NX. Those message wires were the 1979 equivalent of texting. As I got within a foot of these machines... One of them made a noise I had never heard before, a series of ten really loud bells. As I moved over to see what the hell they could mean, the news editor, Frank Rayfield, came over to check as well. We saw the words simultaneously. We gasped simultaneously. Cleveland Bureau to NX. Thurman Munson, catcher captain, New York Yankees dead, piloting private plane, Canton-Akron Airport 30. Still, it stuns me to read those words aloud. As soon as they finished printing, Cleveland sent it again. The bells went off again. I could see I now had about a minute until I went on the air. The editor pointed this out to me. You'll have to ad-lib the sportscast, then come out here and do a or Just talk about his career. Keep repeating that it's a bulletin, that he's dead, and that he was piloting a private plane. You know anything about him and planes? And I remember saying, oh, God, I do. And he said, we'll use whatever you think fits. If more details come in, I'll bring them in to you. I'll try to get somebody at the airport for some sound. I don't remember anything of what I said on the air that night, nor in the special report The Voicer, the editor, had had me record as soon as I finished that live sportscast. It was all recorded. I never wanted to hear any of it. I never wanted to keep any of it. I have basically the rest of my career on tape, but I knew my youth was over right then. Thurman Munson had joined the Yankees when I was nine years old, literally more than half my life ago. He was the first good rookie I ever saw added to my team. My family was convinced he looked like my mother's cousin, Billy. I met him a couple of times, had photographed him once, interviewed him once. He was gruff and forbidding, but I had never had a problem with him. What I knew about him and his plane, I spoke of as generically as possible. In my mind, I flashed back to lunch in the press room at Yankee Stadium four months earlier when I was still in college with my friend Rick Cerrone, the editor, not the catcher. Munson, Rick said, almost surreptitiously, leaning in toward me over the little table. Munson is flying his own plane back home to Ohio on like every day off. The Yankees are terrified. He's not as good a pilot as he thinks he is. Honest to God, one of the executives is trying to get George, that would be George Steinbrenner, the owner, to trade him to Cleveland just so he'll get out of the damn plane. They're all terrified he might wind up killing himself. I don't know how many special reports I did 43 years ago today, in addition to a new sportscast every hour. Later, a friend of mine from college who didn't even know I'd gotten the job as a sportscaster, I was so new there, told me he was driving in Buffalo, listening to the all-news station on the radio. He heard them say Munson had been killed, and with more, here's Keith Olbermann in New York, and he said he almost drove off the road because of the double shock. And I do know my boss, Sam Rosen, who did the morning shift and would have only gotten home from it around 1 or 2 p.m., he came back into the office to supervise things and to put together a long memorial special to feed that the thousand stations that used our stuff would all use. I was so glad to see Sam that day. And then he handed me a piece of paper. Those are the home phone numbers for Lou Pinella and Roy White. Call them try to do interviews, be gentle, record first, ask later. Like Munson, they had played in that game a month before, really was my last as a fan. Roy White had been with the Yankees since I was six years old. Luke Pinella answered his phone, and somehow I asked him if he would talk to me for two minutes, and he did. And almost immediately, he burst into tears. There was such raw, immediate, brutal pain in his voice. I did the only thing I could think of. I said, listen, you should not have to do this all night. I will make copies of this interview and give it to the other radio networks so they will leave you alone. And only then did I think to ask my boss, Sam, who, by the way, still does the New York Rangers games on TV, if that was okay. And mercifully, Sam said it was a great idea. When I called Roy White, and Roy White was literally on the Yankees the day I became a Yankee fan, he begged me to tell him that they had discovered some kind of a mistake, that Thurman Munson was not dead. Both he and Pinella were blunt, but gentle and courteous. And I did make copies of the interviews, and I can see myself handing a cassette to a guy from NBC radio named Mike Leventhal, who ran a kind of cartel, almost a black market, among New York radio sports reporters. Those interviews, the parts with Panella and White, not me, were all over radio that day. I also remember discovering after three or four hours of literally working nonstop that I had never really known what that meant before. I remember I was supposed to be done at 11 p.m. That was the end of the shift, but I stayed until 1 a.m. and I just barely made the train, the last one of the night, back to my house. I remember my boss, Sam Rosen, talking to our stringer in San Francisco, a fellow named Rob Navias, and he said, they're killing my team, I should go to Mexico and smoke myself blind. The things you remember at a time of stress and tragedy. In my youthful misunderstanding of how these things worked, I found myself coming back to the thought that I had somehow failed Thurman Munson by not telling somebody about that Yankee fear from April that he was not as good a pilot as he thought he was, although even then I asked myself, who were you going to tell? There are two postscripts to my story of the 20-year-old me covering the night Thurman Munson died. Twenty years later, I was hosting Baseball's Game of the Week on Fox, and I asked my producer what we were doing for the Munson anniversary. He asked, what anniversary? He was younger than I was. I had to explain it to him, even then. You want to write something we can pre-produce, like a minute and a half? Minute and a half. I did it. Didn't think much of it. A couple of years later, I was one of the public address announcers at Old Timer's Day at Yankee Stadium, invited by the PR director Rick Cerrone Same Rick Cerrone who, in April 1979, told me about Munson and the private planes and the Yankees' fears. It is a small world. The 25th anniversary of Thurman Munson's death was just days away. His widow, Diane, was there. We had never met. Then she saw me on the field and raced up to me and hugged me. That piece you did on him, on the game of the week, when was it, five years ago? That was the best memorial I've ever seen to Thurman. We both teared up. I couldn't believe she said that. I told her about that night in 1979, what it had been like for me. I said I knew it was almost insulting to tell her, but I thought it was important somehow to share. She hugged me again. It was deeply moving, and it is still. The other postscript I only learned of last year, for forever... And the coincidence here with my friend and former boss, Sam Rosen, being the Hall of Fame announcer of the New York Rangers hockey team is extraordinary. But for forever, the reporter covering that hockey team, the Rangers, for the newspaper the New York Post, has been Larry Brooks. I had forgotten until last year that the year that Thurman Munson was killed, Larry was a very, very young beat reporter covering not Rangers hockey, but Yankees baseball. And somebody sent me a clipping from the New York Post from Saturday, July 28, 1979, five days before Munson's fatal plane crash. It is almost beyond belief. Larry Brooks's story began, quote, reports of Thurman Munson's death are exaggerated at least slightly, unquote. Of course, he was using a metaphor. Munson's knees had been giving him trouble. And the manager of the Yankees, Billy Martin, was giving him more time off between catching assignments than usual. But Larry's story also included an even more jaw-dropping quote. Asked about the rumors he might not catch again this year, Munson said, I don't know who started them. It was Martin. Asked after the game how his knees felt, he said, Quote, Sore. Real sore. Hey, you might be seeing... My last hurrah. Larry says that since August 2nd, 1979, 43 years ago, that story has haunted him. Now it haunts me. Maybe it haunts you. All right, I've done all the damage I can do here for another day. The Countdown theme from Beethoven's Ninth, arranged, produced, and performed by Countdown musical directors Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel, Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray, produced by TKO Brothers. Beethoven selections, like this one, performed by No Horns Allowed. Our sports music, the Ulberman theme, written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN, Inc., The famous Nancy Faust on the organ. Our announcer today was my friend John Dean. Everything else is my fault. If you've listened thus far and this far, you will be as pleased as I was to discover we debuted at number 17 on the Apple Podcasts news chart. So thanks for your reviews, rates, and subscriptions. And so that is Countdown for this, the 573rd day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.